Morning, church. Our uh, scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 6. So if you'd like, I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles found in the back, that's on page 811. So again, that's Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read 10 verses from that chapter, uh, not consecutive. We'll be jumping around just a bit. So let's hear what Jesus says to us. Verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In the last section in 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. Amen. Thankful for the word. Um, I've got uh, my voice is a little weak this morning, so why don't you all pray for me that I'll be able to get through this well. And I'd like for you to pray. Um, I was thinking about this just a few minutes ago before I came up here was um, what would it be like if all of God's people really for a moment? I mean, right now, prayed and asked for God's spirit to come and bless the preaching of the word now. Because It's very easy to just say, oh, here we go for the mechanics. Let's pray and then let's preach. I, what I want you to do is right now, everyone to pray a serious, heartfelt prayer with me. Lord, come and please make your word known to us. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, we we need you. We want you. And so we want to get outside of ourselves and our own thinking and the echo chamber of our own minds and heads sometimes. We want to hear you, Lord. We want to feel your presence. We want to know you, God. So I pray that you would shake this place again this morning afresh with your word as we stand here uh, to acknowledge your power and your greatness. You're, you're the reason why we're here. So make me less and small and make Jesus huge in our hearts. 
And I pray that that would be an awesome reality for us this morning, that we would see you in your heart in Matthew 6. Lord, you, um, we, we've worshipped you in song and prayer. There is none like you. So we pray that you do not, you will not leave us to ourselves in this last portion of worship. But bless us with your presence. May the weight of your glory be felt. Make yourself known in this room by your word. Humble us as we come to know our sin and purify us and empower us and set us free to love and lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, take your Bible and open to Matthew 6 if you're not already there. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and uh, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're really glad you're here. I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're, we're, we're just camped out right now in the Gospels. Um, we love to, to, to stay close to the Gospels. And we're in Matthew 6. We're doing one sermon per chapter. So we're, we're moving at a pretty good pace here. And... Um, so Jesus starts this way in verse 1. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we saw last week when Pastor Mark was preaching that Jesus doesn't mean there that unless sort of you have more righteousness, unless you can uh, be more excessive than the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. In other words, do more good works, be a better person, even better than the Pharisees. That's not what Jesus means. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds, he's saying, we're talking about a totally different type of righteousness altogether. Exceeding the Pharisees' righteousness in quality, not quantity, and a completely different type of righteousness. And so the righteousness that we need is a righteousness that comes from Christ, apart from works of the law. And we get that only by faith in Jesus Christ. So here's the thing I hope that we're all clear on this morning is that our moral record, our performance will never gain us access with God ever. No matter how good you are, it, it can never work unless your righteousness is perfect and it's not. Then you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never be able to earn God's favor through that performance. And that's why God has provided another way. You know, one of my favorite verses is, is in Philippians where Paul says this. I, I just love the, love the language here. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what we're talking about this morning is a from of God righteousness, not a from self righteousness. And, and, and that's the, that's the whole point here in Matthew six. We have these Pharisees, these guys that have, oh, they have a lot of their own righteousness, but that's not going to get them anywhere. What they need is a from of God righteousness. Look how Jesus begins. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people of the day. So check this. Uh, check your own heart this morning as we start. These were the Bible carrying, right, church going people of the day. The, the, these are the guys that were religiously engaged. I mean, they were all in. And that should be a warning for us this morning because I would consider myself all in as a Christian, wouldn't you? And if you're all in then these guys were all in and they were really messed up and being all in. So that that's concerning to us this morning. It should be. And so the word hypocrite 
comes from uh, the word theater, from, from the theater, actually, where people would wear masks to hide themselves or hide their true selves. So an, an actor, think about a Hollywood actor who can play the role of a husband or a father. And he's a great husband or father in the movie, but that guy's a scumbag in real life. And that's a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who is putting on a mask. Now, here's what I want to say is that if you are able, by God's grace, to locate hypocrisy in your life, that is a very good sign. Very good sign. And, And I'm concerned about the person who can listen to this whole message and not be able to identify even a single area of hypocrisy in their life. And, and that's why we have the word of God. And that's why hopefully we have faithful preachers and teachers to bear, bring the word of truth to bear upon our hearts. So that we can see who we are. And, and what Jesus is after here is for us to develop the disciplines of a sincere faith. An authentic faith. Not a hypocritical religious expression. So what we have here is three signs of religious hypocrisy in Matthew 6. And I want to ask this question, and I want you to ask this question as we go through this. Am I like that? Do I do that? Jot that down. Am I like that? Do I do that? As we go through this, verse 2. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Uh, the first subject here is giving. Jesus is addressing almsgiving or what we might call benevolence or giving to the needy. And this is the first characteristic of religious hypocrisy is that they do this in such a way that they want to be seen and praised by others for what they are doing for the needy. Do I do this? Am I like this? Then you have praying in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Again, what's the point? That they might be seen by others. The second characteristic of hypocrisy, playing, praying in places where people can see you. I remember being on a, on a, on a trip a mission trip with uh, Pastor Mark in India in 2005. And while we were there, we we're in this place called Jammu. Jammu is uh, up, in, up in the north region. And we stopped at this place, a uh, very dangerous place. And there was this sort of this ministry there. And there was this pastor, and I'm sure you remember this, Mark, this pastor sitting there. And, and my recollection is that there was a living room and there was a kitchen. And there's this pastor right in the middle of the hallway where all the traffic is praying and like moving his body like this and speaking in tongues and praying out loud and, and, and just really carrying on and letting everybody see that he was really Mr. Spiritual praying right there in between the kitchen and the living room before the church service started. And it just hit me like, wow, what a gross, unbelievable expression of just everybody watch me be so spiritual. And when that hit me, I was just like, wow, that that just made Matthew 6 come alive. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes to fasting, verse 16, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites uh, who they disfigure their faces uh, when they're fasting that they may be seen. This is the third characteristic of hypocrisy. It's fasting in such a way that everybody around you knows. So you might not make your face look gloomy, but here's my question for you is, is do you tell people you're fasting? Do you like to let people know or do you find subtle ways to say, I'm not going to have lunch today? Well, Well, why not? Oh, well, I'm fasting today. See, we can find really subtle, crafty ways to sort of let know that we are being spiritual. The ones watching them. They want to be seen. And that's the problem. It's religious hypocrisy. Do I do that? 
am I like that? Now, the burden of Matthew 6 is for us, obviously, to not do that, to replace that with the disciplines of a sincere faith. And Jesus so, shows us what authentic Christian looking uh, living excuse me, looks like in four areas. You know what they are? Here they are. Praying, fasting, our use of money, and anxiety. Those are the four subjects that he deals with in Matthew 6. So we're going to go right through them. We're going to start with prayer. Jesus says in verse 6, when you pray, what does he say? Go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who sees in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Amen. All right. So we're going to work on prayer for a minute here. And and who better to talk to us about prayer than Jesus? Uh, the disciples were with Jesus for three years. And never do we see the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to do miracles. We don't see the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to teach. But what do they say? They say, Lord, teach us how to pray. See, there's something that they saw about Jesus' life that was blatantly obvious. That there's one thing that Jesus is serious about. It's prayer. Is that this guy's getting up before the crack of dawn. Before it's even light outside. And he's gone, he's gone to a solitary place. And he's praying. And he's on his knees. And they knew that Jesus, that was one thing that he had big time. Was prayer. Big time. And not only that, but they knew that Jesus did not forsake prayer. He was persistent in it. He did not neglect that. And so they're saying, Lord, if we get anything else, we want you to teach us how to pray. And so in verses 5 through 15, we see what true prayer is. In fact, if you want to evaluate, and that's what we're supposed to be doing here, right? We're juxtaposing religious hypocrisy with authentic expressions of faith. And so if you want to evaluate the sincerity of your prayer life, Okay, then here are three questions to ask. All of them come right here from Jesus. So check yourself. The first question is this. Is my prayer real? Is it real? Is it genuine is another way to say it. Is it sincere? Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not like be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may, by, may be seen by others. Notice a couple of those words there. Love. They love, they love this. They love to pray in the synagogues and the street corners. And the other thing, they love to stand. They love to stand and pray. Now, notice those words. I mean, they just, where, where are they praying? They're praying at the synagogue. For us, what is that? That's church. That's community group. That's Bible study. Love, love, love to stand and pray at community group. Some of you are like, I hate it. <laughs> that might be a good sign, but it also might not be a good sign. So here's the thing, is that, is that these guys love it. And, and so it's, it's almost like this, the, you can hear, you can almost feel the emotion of, of the, these guys saying, I, I love this part when everybody gets to listen to me pray to God. And they get to hear my profound language. And my deep insight into the things of God. And they get to hear me pray scripture and weave it in and out of my prayer so eloquently. And use the names of God in theological terms while I pray. And then they get to see the power by which I pray. And the intimacy that I have with God. I love it when people hear me pray. Really dude? You're like man is that really your plan? Is that what you're up to? Because if that's your thing, Jesus says, if you love that, if that's the part that you like being seen by others and getting, then that's your reward. That's all you get, man. That's it. You get that one minute 
And probably your reward, your reward is everybody else around you saying, that guy's an idiot. So you think that's a big reward. It's actually not. Most people see right through that and realize this guy's a fake. And he's showing off in front of everybody. And, you know, and so Jesus is like, if that's your thing, that's your whole deal. That's all you get. That's it right there. Because that's not doing anything for God. Let's be really clear. And you ask, well, well, why isn't God answering my prayers? Why would you ask that? You're showing off. You're wanting other people to hear you. And you wonder why God's not answering your prayers? Your heart is so sick. Jesus says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. Now, Jesus is not saying it's wrong, by the way, to pray uh, in public prayer meetings. He's not saying it's wrong to pray at your small group or your Bible study. He's saying that your public prayer life should be the overflow of what's happening with you and Jesus in private. In other words, there better be something real going on in your life Monday through Saturday that when you stand up to pray on Sunday, that's not a fake thing. That's a real thing flowing out of a real life that is wanting God and seeking him regularly in private. That's what Jesus is saying. And so I I, I love this. Leonard Ravenhill once said that the pulpit can be a shop window to display one's talents, but the prayer closet Allows no showing off. You know why that is? Okay, here's why that is. Is Think about it. Who goes into the room, shuts the door all by themselves to fake it? Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone into your room and shut the door to fake it? Nobody does that. No, because secret prayer is the mark of sincerity. People don't go into the room and close the door and pray unless they want to. That's hard. People get alone with God and pray on a regular basis because they want to be with God, not because they're faking it. So jot this down. The secret to prayer is praying in secret, as Raven Hill again said. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this, is what does my prayer life say about my sincerity and pursuit of God? Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is on his knees before God that he is and nothing more. Does that land on you this morning? I mean, see, that hits me because I am exposed. See, what I am on my knees is who I really am. That is the real me. And if I'm not on my knees much, guess what? That's bad news for the real me. That is bad news. And and so I'm, I've been there. And I have to fight that even as a pastor so the second question, so that's prayer, the second, uh, on prayer, the second question on prayer is found in verse seven. Is my prayer, so is it real? Second question, is it simple? Verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases that the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. See, what God doesn't want is this sort of, this repetitious, over and over, same thing kind of prayer. You know that thing that you memorize, that canned prayer that you like to recite every day that you go through over and over again? That's the thing Jesus is saying. That's not what I'm into, uh, this repetitious thing. You know, the, and so so we just kind of get up. We go through our little prayer thing, and then we check it off, and the prayer's done. It's like, uh, dear God, brrr, done. Dear God, brrr, done. And it's, brrr, and that's it. Just that little, brrr, and then we do it every day, that same thing. And, and, and that's not what Jesus is after. The other key statement is many words. They like to heap up many words. 
Our prayers should be simple and direct and sincere. They're not supposed to be long-winded, extravagant orations that are intended to impress others. You don't need to pray that way for God to hear you. There's almost this sort of this impulse here that's like, oh, well, I need so many, many words. If God's going to hear me, I'm going to have to use many words. And God is saying, no, you don't. He's saying, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't need a bunch of words. Your father already knows. He wants your heart, not your words. He wants yourself. He wants your inner man, not all your profound flowery language. God loves you and he hears your prayer no matter how raw and simple it is. You don't have to have the right words. He already knows before you ask him. How sweet is that promise? How sweet is that? I don't have to impress God. Make a note of this. Our prayers do not inform God. Prayers exercise faith in God. We do not unburden our hearts to God so that he will understand. We unburden our hearts to God so that we can have the experience of knowing that he understands. And that's the privilege is that, God, I'm with you right now and I know that you're hearing me and this is precious and powerful and that you love me. Is my prayer real? Is it simple? Third thing, is my prayer God-centered? How do we know this? Jesus says in verse 9, pray like this. Don't you love that? I don't know how to pray, Lord. Okay, pray like this. Could it get any clearer? So helpful. And then he goes into the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on this. Mark preached a sermon in August of last fall on this, on the Lord's Prayer. Go back, dip into the archives and watch that. It's very helpful. But I will say this. The first part of the prayer is intentionally God-centered. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. To hallow is to set apart, to recognize as holy, to, to honor, to revere, to reverence, to respect. Okay? And this is, by the way, is not, is not an address. Hallowed is your name. This is a request. Lord, make your name hallowed. Make your name special. Some of you may have gone through 15, 20 years of your life thinking this was just an address. Holy God. This is not an address. It's a request. Make your name hallowed. What did Jesus tell us in the Lord's Prayer? What are we supposed to long for and yearn for first and above all? What should be the all-defining, all-shaping, all-influencing desire of our hearts? Jesus said, desire this first. Pray this first. Hallowed be your name. Plead for this first and above all. So you're saying you're going to God and you're saying, Father... Cause your name to be set apart and honored and start right here with me. And then move to my wife and my kids and my children and my church and our city and the all the unreached peoples of the world. Make your name hallowed. And then, Lord, do this act for your sake and do this act for those people who have never hallowed your name. And then do this act for those people who don't hallow your name well. That's what we're praying now, let me just let me just linger here for a few minutes. And it, because here's the thing, if we're going to treasure God's name, don't we need to know his name? Don't we need to know who he is? And one of the greatest ways to get to know God is to study his names. I don't know how many of you have taken up a, a study of God's names in scripture. And I don't know if I've ever done any teaching on that, but let me just mention a few of them to you this morning. OK, number one, the most prominent name for God in scripture is Yahweh. 
It occurs over 6,000 times. It's God's personal sacred name. It's the most frequently named, used name for God in the Old Testament. But what does it mean? It means whenever you see that L-O-R-D capitalized, that's Yahweh. And what, are that, what does that name mean? It means that God is eternal. God has always existed. Number two, it means that God is unchangeable. That God cannot change. God's name, God's name is not I was. God's name is not I will be. God's name is I am. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which is why you can trust him. That's his name. And then, and then the third thing it means is that it, it's his, it's always, the name Yahweh is forever attached with his covenant promises with his people. Is that a covenant was cut and sealed with the blood of Jesus, and therefore God will remain faithful to us. That's what his covenant name means. And then there are other names that are attached to the name Yahweh. So Yahweh Yira. Maybe you're used to hearing Jehovah Jireh. Okay. Yahweh Yira. What does that mean? It means the Lord will provide. And so when it was time for Abraham to offer Isaac to the Lord, God provided a ram in the thicket. And then we read this in Genesis 22. So Abraham called that place Yahweh Yira, the Lord will provide. And it's a powerful display of what God has done for us in Christ. When Jesus is on the cross, what is being screamed out louder than anything else is Yahweh Yira, the Lord has provided for you a sacrifice, a lamb that was slain. That's what it means for the Lord to be our provider. No wonder Jesus tells us later in Matthew 6, don't be anxious about your clothes. I'm, I'm Yahweh Yira, the God who provides. And then we have Yahweh Nissi. The Lord is my banner. This name is given in the context of warfare. So you remember when Moses raised his hands and his hands began to fall and they said, just keep my hands up. Why? That was a symbolism that God is our help. God is our banner. God is our strength. God is the one going before us. We have to have God. It's dependence on him. And they ra- he raised his hand, confessing that we need God. And to say, Yahweh Nissi, is to say, God is my banner. He will fight for me. He will make my path straight. He will go before me. I am dependent upon him. He is my warrior. And then we have Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. The God told Israel if they obeyed him, he would be their healer. Exodus 15 says, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord and you do what is right in his eyes, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. And then when Christ comes to the earth, what does he do? He heals the sick. He heals the lame, the blind. He healed and then he healed the hearts of his people. This is Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. We have sick people here this morning who who need to hear that again this morning. God does not promise us healing in this life. He often will bring it. But you know what? Psalm 103 tells us that someday you will have a new body. There will be no more sickness and suffering. He will ultimately heal you. We'll pray that it comes right now. And often there is an inbreaking of God's healing in this life. So you should pray with complete boldness. God, heal me. Right? Because you're God 
And you spoke the world into existence, and it's easy for you like that to heal me. So if it's your will, then right now, then Lord, if there's someone here, even this morning, who is sick, even terminally sick, heal them in Jesus' name. He can do that. And then we have Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. This is the name that, that speaks of God's special presence with his people. It's the name given, actually, to the new heavens and the new earth. Ezekiel prophesies, I love this. He says, and the name of the city from that time on will be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. How precious is that? That's the whole point of heaven, isn't it? It's God. It's not that we're going somewhere to listen to some nice harp music while we're floating on clouds. We're going to worship and be with God. His presence, his presence will be the light of day. There he is. There's God. And the name of the city will be Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. And he, he's here right now. He's in you. He indwells us. And he's in his people. And he's in his church. And when we gather together for worship, we feel his presence powerfully. He loves us. Well, these are some of the names of God. Use them to help you pray. Right? Hallowed be his name. I'm just helping you with what his name is. All right? So everybody with me? Is my prayer real? Is my prayer simple? Is my prayer God-centered? There are other things we can look at in the Lord's Prayer we're not, we don't have time for. But if you just watch the rest, if you go down the rest of the Lord's Prayer, here's what it is. If I if preach the rest of the sermon, it would be this. Is my prayer submissive? Your will be done. Is my prayer dependent? Give us our day, our daily bread. Is my prayer repentant? Forgive us of our debts. And then is our prayer aware? Just aware. Lead us not into temptation. Is it aware? So that's the Lord's Prayer. Next, Jesus turns to fasting. Now, it's very easy to get frustrated in the Christian life. Uh, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way. But it's, you know, you have inconsistent quiet times. You're not sensing God's presence like you want. You're feeling like you don't measure up. You realize that all the sin struggles that you have, you're frustrated with like, why do I keep struggling with the same things? And then maybe you're not seeing answers to prayers. You're not experiencing the breakthrough that you're longing for and asking God for. And these are things that frustrate us as Christians. So here's the thing. We plan to get alone with God and spend time with him in prayer, but somehow it never happens. Or that the time, it does happen, but the time gets cut short. And then, and then something else takes over and then we walk away and we're defeated and we're frustrated and we can't make any progress. And here's the question. Why aren't we changing? You ever ask that? You just can't, it's like you can't put a finger on it. Why aren't we changing? And you know, some people come along and say, well, the reason why you're not changing is you don't change because you don't want to. And you know what? There might be an element of truth to that. But then again, I would say that that's, that's really reductionistic. That's not always the case. The problem is that many times I really want to, right? I want to be with God. I want to meet with him. The problem is that even though we want to do something in our heart, like pray and seek God, there are other things, hear me, that we want more. That's the problem. You understand what I'm saying? There are things that we want more. So, so, so what, here's the question. What do we do when the things that we really want to do are not the things that we keep choosing? In other words, I know I need to pursue these things, but I keep going this way. I keep going after the path of least resistance. How do we break the pattern of choosing the path of ease over a disciplined life of prayer and pursuit of God? Is that a practical question for us today? Anybody feel that? You with me? 
Okay, so how do we break that pattern? Answer, fasting. Fasting. What is fasting? A few years ago, I I came across this definition of fasting. Fasting is abstaining from food. And we could throw in other categories there. Fasting is abstaining from food for measured periods of time in order to heighten my hunger for the things of God. Helpful. Very helpful. It's abstaining from the physical in order to heighten the spiritual. And, and, and if you've never done that, then I'm telling you right now that you're missing out. You're really missing out because too much food dulls our hunger for God. Too much leisure dulls our hunger for God. Too much sex dulls our hunger for God. Too much entertainment and TV and music dulls our hunger for God. Too much of anything physical dulls our hunger for God. And so what do we have to do? We have to abstain from the physical in order to heighten the spiritual. And you wonder why I don't feel hunger for God. Here's why. Because you're not abstaining from the physical. You're all in, man. More, 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 more. More food, more entertainment, more comfort, more ease, more pleasure, more stuff. And you just stuff yourself. And when you stuffed yourself that full, guess what? There's not any room for God. And you wonder why you're not hungry for God. You're not hungry because you're you're fat. You've gorged on everything else that's physical. Jot this down. We have very little hunger for God. I believe that. We have very little hunger for God. And by little, I mean in proportion. And I mean in amount. And here's what I mean by that. In little in amount. I mean, how many of you missed a meal this week? Well, even if you did, how many of you had a snack bar somewhere that you could pull out? You're 30 minutes late for lunch. Well, you know, I'm not going to let that slow me down. I got a, I got a snack bar right here. Cliff bar. Got one right here. I'm going to eat it. Right. Uh, I'm on the way. I can't even I, I can't even get to work until I you know eat a breakfast bar. I got to have something. So we get up in the morning and it's boom. Have coffee right away. How many people are coffee right now? People. I am. All right. And then, and then there's like I got to have food right now. And then and then we can't miss a meal. And if we miss a meal, man, it's like we're crabby. We're grumpy. Life is just no good. And And so. But we don't we don't miss meals. But here's the thing. How many of you are able to just miss spiritual meals? No problem. Praying with God, reading scripture, just, you know, it's not. I, I don't know. I don't I don't even know it. I don't even realize it. Maybe you're saying I just go on through my day. I didn't know I was supposed to meet with God. See, we hunger for God very little and also little in proportion. Who here would say, actually, I have a hunger for God that is proportionate to how awesome he is. Who here would say my hunger for God is is equal to the greatness of his glory? Who here would say my hunger for God is right in line with who he is? Well, I didn't think so. See, because even the most spiritual among us would have to admit that they are a long way from that. But what did we read last week? Didn't Pastor Mark preach something to us from Matthew 5 that said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Bored? They shall be bored? They shall be, no, they shall be satisfied. The word blessed means happy, contented, satisfied, filled. 
And I'm telling you that there are not enough of us that are happy, satisfied, filled, and content people. That you can just tell that we're just moving around at this frenetic pace. Just trying to find ways to be happy and satisfied. And all that is just screaming out, man, you're missing God, man. He's the one that can fill you. He's the only one that can do that. Here's the problem. We have no room for God. We're stuffed with everything else. Reading the Bible and praying, it just requires too much effort. We're out of energy because we're doing so many other things. And here's the point. That's exactly why we have to fast. See, that's where fasting comes in. we got to find a way to withdraw from the physical in order to heighten the spiritual. So here's what I want to challenge you with this week. Why don't you fast this week? Why don't you fast? You say, well, what for? What's the purpose? Okay, let me just give you a few to start off with. Why don't you fast, number one, to get right with God? Why don't you fast to see answers to prayer instead of just praying the same thing all the time, but but really praying with power this time because you're like saying, God, I'm giving up some stuff because I'm, I'm tired of just going through these motions. Why don't you fast to defeat personal sin? Maybe you can fast this week to see a family breakthrough, to break a satanic stronghold, to turn your family and church and God help us, our nation, back to God, to bring life and vitality to churches, fast to bring children back to their parents, fast to heal relationships in the home or in the church or in your life. Just start with some of those categories. So why don't you skip a meal this week? Why don't you, why don't you get a meal planned out with your wife and just say we're skipping it together or 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 why don't you why don't you draw your children into this exercise and say we're not having dinner tonight we're going to fast because we're all going to seek god as a family find a way to get alone and fast with god make note of this the issue with fasting is not first a how-to it's a want to it's a want to we don't really need this great tutorial on how to do fasting all right. For many of us, food or entertainment is filling the place in our hearts that only God wants to fill. Paul says, all things are useful to me, but not all things are helpful. Or, sorry, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved to anything. You know what fasting does? Hear this. Fasting breaks your enslavement. That's what it does. Look at 1 Peter 2.11. I love this. Let's get this on the screen here. 1 Peter 2.11 Peter says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Now, look, look, look at this language here to abstain, to abstain from passions of the flesh. Why? Why? Because they wage war against your souls. So we just rip through weeks without even thinking about fasting. And Peter's saying, man, you better better not do that, because fasting, the whole point of it here is that it's meant to break the passions of the flesh, which are waging war against your soul. So if you can fast, you can learn how to abstain from some of those passions, which are killing you. Here's the principle. Anything that has mastery over you can be set aside for a time to break its enslavement. And that's why we fast. Fasting reveals what controls us. Some of you all need to fast this week just for just for no other purpose than just to reveal what's controlling me right now. And it shows us who we are and we need that exposure. See, fasting is intended to ignite our passion for God. That's what it's for. But the motive has to be right. Zechariah 7, 5. I ran across this verse in my preparation and I don't don't remember reading it before, but it just struck me. Zechariah 7, 5 says, when you fasted and mourned, 
was it for me that you fasted? That's a really challenging thought. And I want you to think about, have you ever fasted for no other reason than just to get God? Right? Because it's very easy to fast and say, Lord, I'm going to fast now because I got this prayer thing that I, I you know, I, I really want to see this breakthrough and I'm praying for this situation and, uh, you know, I'm at a fork in the road and I got to make some critical decisions about my future or we got a financial crisis or we got something that we're dealing with and God, I'm going to fast and I'm going to say, I really, 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 really need this and I really, really want this. Lord, would you answer and I'm going to show you how serious I am. Well, what about this? Let's scratch all that. What if we said this? God, I'm fasting for no other reason than I just want you. I'm fasting for no other purpose than this. I want to repent. Have you ever fasted for just pure repentance? They did. Read Jonah. That's what they did. They had a fasting of repentance. That's a great way to start. All right. So Jesus next turns to his attention to money. All right. I know we're flying through these, but that's what you do when you preach a whole chapter. Matthew Matthew's gospel is great, and, he, and Jesus now moves us to money, 19 through 24, and he lays out his expectations for us in this regard. Jesus says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money's a power. Here's the thing. Let, let me just back up here, is that all these things are interconnected, right? So you got prayer and fasting and money. So the point of fasting is to abstain from the physical is that money oftentimes does the exact opposite, is that it just sucks us in, right? So these things all work together. And and here's the thing, is that money is a power, and it will attempt to take God's place in your life. Hear me. Money is a power, and it will attempt to take God's place in your life. The Bible makes clear that what you do with money will have a profound effect on your life and your soul. Jesus presents it like a power that if you allow it, it'll become a dictator and it'll totally enslave you. If, however, though, here's the good news, you learn how to master money, then you can use it as your servant in such a way that it'll actually enhance and strengthen your devotion to God. So you have a couple of choices to make here, right? Don't let money be your master on the one hand, and on the other hand, Make sure that you make money your servant. Don't let it be your master. Make it your servant. Money will try to master your heart. And here's the thing. If it masters your heart, your soul will wither. Think about this. How many people have spent their lives acquiring things they now despise because they realize what they lost trying to get what they had to have? You got to think about that. They, they're trying so hard to get something they have to have and now they despise it because they realize, man, I, the cost was too great. I gave up too much. I lost too much. See, when money is your master, you will lose. It will increasingly dominate your life. It will increasingly erode your love for God. And it's why Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God at the same time. You have to make a choice. Either we're going to put our confidence and hope in money in this life or we're going to put our confidence and hope in God in this life. And this is one of the greatest battles of your soul. And hear me, it will determine the outcome and the direction and the priorities of your life. The outcome, the direction, and the priorities of your life. Money will determine that and what you do with it. Don't let money be your master. Here's the thing. Let, make money your servant. Money, if money is a power, here's the thing. Think about it. What if we could channel 
that power. So instead of drawing my heart away from God, it reinforced my love and devotion to God. What if I could channel that power to loving God more? And that's exactly what Jesus says you can do. Verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice that the heart follows your treasure. So here's the thing. If you want to move your heart to God, move your treasure to God. That's the that's the method. So move your money toward God's kingdom, his mission, and then your heart will follow. And if Christ doesn't get your treasure, then he's not going to get your heart. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to have a heart for him. So it's, it's, it's about saying, God, I, my heart, I don't feel you. I don't love you. I don't worship you like I want to. So the way to kind of correct your heart is to start with your money. Say, I'm going to start moving my money toward God and his care and his kingdom and his causes. And guess what's going to come behind it? Your heart, your heart. That's going to happen. So the two prominent examples of this is Zacchaeus, okay, who 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 had a moved his money to to pay off his loans and his debts, and his heart changed. And Jesus said, "Today salvation has come to your house." What's the other example? Negative example: rich, young, the rich young ruler. He couldn't give it up. He couldn't give it up, and his heart was rotten, and it never changed. See, that's the that's the issue here. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do we have any work to do here in the money category? I do. I do. Finally, Jesus deals with the issue of anxiety. And uh, after exposing the folly of storing up treasures on earth, Jesus says... Okay, so we know that 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 stuff isn't going to work. Money isn't going to save you. Okay, now because of that, here's what I want to say to you. I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to be anxious. Okay, and and he gives us a method for how to fight anxiety with faith. And it comes down to this. The way to fight anxiety is just to understand that God cares for you. He, He really cares for you. I wonder how many of you this morning would perceive yourselves to be worriers. You don't have to raise your hand, but let's pretend you're raising it in your heart. How many of you would 